If you would take your Bibles, please, if you have one, if you don't, there's some up the back and turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you can find verse 39, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 39, the Bible reads, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is Vision Sunday, take two. Some of you know what I mean by that. Last week was the plan. And I don't know precisely why the Lord, in his sovereign will, did not permit me to be present last week for our planned Vision Sunday, but I do know that much work has been done in my heart over the past week, which I hope will be evident in what we look at today. And this is a most unusual event for us, certainly for me. Vision Sunday, Communion Sunday, congregational meeting all wrapped up into one, something I would never plan. Uh, I just wouldn't plan, it's not how I would do it. Um, Last week was mapped out perfectly. I was going to unveil our theme verse. I was going to preach on it. It was perfect. At least that's what I thought. But the Lord had other ideas, definitely, because what I had planned to do, I cannot do today, because this is also Communion Sunday. And uh, the planned idea last week doesn't work with what I believe the Lord would have us do in consideration before partaking at the Lord's table. And so I believe it's been God's plan and design all the way along. I believe absolutely in the sovereignty and providence of God. And so we're here for a part one of take two uh, of our Vision Sunday. And so for some time I have been wondering what it is the Lord have me share with us today as we celebrate an unveiling of plans for the year as we celebrate our time around the table uh, as we prepare our hearts for a congregational meeting. And so for both Vision Sunday and for Communion Sunday, our text is simple uh, and so is the message. The title is simply this, Jesus Christ, our only vision. Jesus Christ, our only vision. Vision, Hebrews 12, verse 2, says, looking to Jesus. Uh, Lord, as I uh, commence teaching and preaching through your word today, uh, on this uh, occasion, I thank you, Lord, for all that has transpired over the last week, for opportunities to depend upon you, uh, to see in action your sovereign work, Lord, we're here, all of us, by divine appointment at this time, this day. Uh, And Lord, I pray that uh, that which you have laid upon my heart, which is in the pages of Scripture, would 
Uh, Lord, not just be information, would not just be intellectual assent, but that would, it, would, it would be spiritual and life-changing for each of us. Uh, so simple uh, is this message and yet profound uh, in another sense. So simple to understand and yet life-changing if we would live it. And, oh Lord, my prayer today is that you would cause us to have a great desire to look unto the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. So help us, we pray, for these next few moments together in preparation for our time around the table. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you some background and some context this morning before we go to the specific part of the text we want to look at. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 39, let me read those last two verses once again to put us into the picture. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the background and the context to verse 2, which we'll get to in just a few moments. You are probably familiar, Hebrews 11 is that great chapter on faith. The characters of faith, the heroes of faith. And in that chapter we read there are 16 named heroes along with countless others uh, who lived holy and heroic lives but they all died looking for a promise, believing a promise and yet never seeing that promise fulfilled. What was that promise? That promise was the Messiah. That was the Jesus of chapter 12 and verse 2. They were all looking forward to that and exercising faith in it. And at God's appointed time, no earlier, no later, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, was sent into the world who was the fulfilment of all of that old covenant and he was the instigator of the new covenant that we're going to look at in just a little while. He paid for a permanent redemption. Permanent. It was never there before. A permanent redemption. Once for all with his precious blood on the cross of Calvary. And then he was resurrected as the firstborn from the dead. At his ascension, the Bible tells us that he gave gifts to men in Ephesians and then shortly later sent the comforter to indwell his purchased possession. That's just a a real quick summary of the gospel message. The Old Testament believers' faith was incomplete in one sense. They had absolute faith in the Messiah, but they never realised, they never saw the Messiah. We, at the end of verse 39 and 40, are told that we have been given something better. We are the recipients of the fullness, the completion of that great gospel. And that apart from us, their faith is not complete. Their faith is not perfect in that sense that we are the recipients of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus and the Messiah, the fulfilment of all that the Old Testament saints were longing for. We have a rich heritage in these Old Testament saints. That's 39 and verse 40 in quick summary. But we get to verse 1 of chapter 12. And the author of Hebrews, most of you know I believe that's Paul, but there are differences of opinion. He begins by saying, therefore. Now please remember, and I know you know this, but let me remind you again, there are no chapter breaks. 
And unfortunately, this is one of the, the sadder times in Scripture, I feel, where there ought not to be a chapter break here. This really causes us to go, oh, this is a new thought. This is no new thought. Therefore, connects verse 40 to verse 1 here. Therefore, because of all that has happened before, and interestingly, this is not the usual word for therefore in the Bible. This is a unique word used only once else in Scripture, this word therefore, and it literally means in consequence of or certainly for this reason. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What is Paul or the author here referring to? Again, just some background and some context for us. The author is suggesting that we are encircled by a great multitude. That multitude are those great members of the faith from chapter 11. And the picture here uh, in this particular passage, the word picture, is as though they are sitting in the circular seats of the arena. This is the Olympic Games metaphor that Paul was so familiar with. In fact, some people believe that he may have even been a contestant based on all of the different metaphors he uses. And here he paints a picture as though Abraham and Moses and Rahab and all those others mentioned in Hebrews 11 are sitting in the circular seats of the arena and they are looking at the the, the race that we are running. That's the picture that we have here in the original language. Um, There is a great cloud of witnesses watching on. Now, we need to pause for a moment. I don't believe that that is a true reality. I believe that's a metaphor, that Paul is painting a metaphor. I don't believe that truly in the, in the seats of heaven there are Abraham and various others who are looking actually at our race. But the picture here is that all of these have gone before and they are watching on as though it were some sort of a race that we are running and it's our turn now. And this is an interesting little understanding here because this is what we call the indicative. Some of you will remember from past times, the indicative is the reason why something is there and the imperative is the command. You might recall that from some time ago. The indicative, the reason, is that the people are sitting there and watching. The imperative follows. This is the command. Lay aside every weight. Because we are in this race, because we are running this race and there's this cloud of witnesses watching, we ought to do something. And verse Number one says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The picture is simple. As an athlete, as one who is running in this circuit before a myriad of people, we are commanded to strip off every encumbrance, every kind of weight, every superfluous element that would hinder our progress. I think it's very interesting, again, just by way of some background and context, we find in this particular verse 1, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. When you read this in the original, Paul, or the author of this epistle, is talking about the specific sins and weights that are unique to you and I. He's not talking about sin in general. He is talking about that particular sin that both you and I know in our own lives is the one that we keep tripping up on. I don't know what that is for you. I know what it is for me. 
I know what the, the chink in my armour is. I know what the, the difficulties and the constant battles I have. I don't have battles in this area, but I certainly have a battle in this area, whatever it is. And you need to, for a moment, identify what is that besetting sin? What is that thing that I am constantly wrestling with? Whether it's cares or anxieties or, or whether it's uh, having idols in my life or whether it's that I'm not loving as I ought to, or whatever that is, this is what he's pointing out. That particular weight and sin specifically, that one which we are easily inclined to commit. In fact, one commentator suggests that it's that particular sin that winds around us and hinders our course. The metaphor, again, there's so many word pictures in this uh, first verse. The metaphor is of those long oriental garments. You've seen those pictures, those robes that the, the men would wear and the women, but the men in particular, they would wear them to the race and they would either remove the outer garment or they would tuck it in to their underwear so that they would be able to run effectively without it tripping up their legs as they would run. That was the, men, the, the metaphor here. The idea is that oriental garment either needs to go or it needs to be tucked in because as I run, I am going to trip. I'm going to have it winding around my legs and I will be rendered useless in the race. And so he says, lay aside all of that. Remove the garment that's clinging so closely as to cause us a problem. And then he says here, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance is simply this. It is the cheerful constancy the patient perseverance of the marathon runner. I think I've shared this with you before uh, when we've looked at a similar place in the scriptures. This word race is the word which we get agony from. Agony is the Greek word for race here. That gives you an indication of what this race as a Christian is like. Agony. And that literally speaks of a conflict. It speaks of a battle. It's a perilous path. It's a tumultuous track. It's a calamitous course. It's a rocky road. It's all of those things all wound up into this one word, race. So when someone says to you, you know, the Christian life is really easy. You can say that's funny because the very word for the race that we're in is the word agony. It's designed not to be a simple walk in the park, but a run that takes endurance and hardship. And isn't that what Paul said to Timothy anyway? Endure hardness. It's a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If you're going to be a good soldier, if you're going to be a good runner, you're going to have to endure hardness. And that's precisely what I believe that Paul is saying here. And then the last thing here in this first verse, again, context, background, the race that is set before us. The race was set, predetermined, personally appointed as a track for you. God placed you into this race as a Christian and he has already determined what that path looks like. You don't know, I don't know, but he does. And it has been personally appointed for you. It's a unique lane for every runner. Different twists and turns for each one, but the same final destination. This is the Christian race. That must be a record for me. Three verses in about 
eight minutes. I've just covered three verses in eight minutes. That's all preparatory to the one thing I want us to look at in verse number two. And if you want to point, the overall point to this whole thing is this, looking to Jesus solely and wholly. Looking to Jesus solely and wholly. That's the summary of the whole message, if you like. So let's begin. Looking to Jesus. What I so love about this passage in Scripture, uh, up there with some of the other great texts that I just love of the Scriptures, is this word looking. Now, in the English, this just means to look. We, we see looking, we say, yeah, okay, we all know what that is. We're all looking, you're looking at me, I'm looking at you. Looking is just looking, is it not? Well, not in this case. This is wonderful and if you have your pen poised, please take note of this. This is a unique word in the Greek language. It appears only one other time. I beg your pardon. It does not appear any other times in the whole of the Bible, this Greek word, which makes it incredibly unique. In the whole 27 books in the New Testament, the word looking, this is unique. And this particular word is made up of two Greek words. The overall word is aphoreo. You don't have to remember that. There's no test later, but there's a reason why I say it. It's made up of two words. One is apo, which means away from, and the other is phareo, or hareo rather, which means to stare or to fix one's attention on. You say, wow, that is groundbreaking. I'm so glad you told us that. Here's the reason. Here's what's amazing about this particular word. When you blend these two Greek words together, apo and hareo, it literally means this to look away from other things in order to gaze on one particular thing. I'm to turn. I've been looking over here. If someone were to use this aphoreo word for me, stop looking there in order to look somewhere else. It is a progressive changing word and this is exciting because it doesn't just mean look that way. It means remove everything else from which you are currently gazing at in order to look at one single thing. In the entire Bible, this word appears once and it is in reference to our vision of Jesus Christ. Look away from absolutely everything else in order to have one thing in view and that one thing is not a thing, it's a person and it is Jesus Christ. What are we to look away from? Christian, what are we to look away from? Let me give you a few thoughts here to help us as we consider the first part of looking away. I think the first thing is very obvious in the text and it is this, look away from the cloud of witnesses. Look away from the spectators. Look away from the Christians of the past. We are not running their race. We are running our race. Please don't misunderstand. What I am not saying is that we ought not to learn from them or or do some study of these great uh, Uh, bearers of the faith of the past. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, we are not running their race. Don't look to them. Look away from them. 
Do not set your vision and focus on them. Look away from them. Another thought. Christian, look away from the mocking crowd. The ridicule of those on the sideline who would poke fun at your Christianity. Look away from them. Because if you begin to look at them, you will be distracted and discouraged as you look at them. Don't look at the enemies of the faith. Don't focus your attention on those who are out to oppose you in your race. A third one. This is a really important one. And if we get a hold of this one, this will be really important for us as believers. Look away from your past lapse. We're in a circuit here. The picture here is I'm in this arena and I am running around and around and around until such a time as I am called home and my race is finished and the lane is done and it's all over. But you know what the tendency sometimes for us as Christians can be is I'm looking at my past lapse. I'm looking at what I did. I'm looking at all the things that are behind me. And sometimes Christians will live in the past when they need to not live in the past. They need to live in the present. They need to let that go. And yes, you may have uh, have a few scars from this same track last year or last 10 years or whatever it might be. But we need to leave the laps behind, not look at the past. The past will cripple us. We don't consider the pain of the previous circuits. Don't live the battles of yesterday. Another one for us to think about is look away from other runners. See, the tendency used to be for me as I would be involved in uh, sprinting, which is not marathon at all like this sort of thing, but the tendency for me and my coach would say to me often, stop looking at the lanes and the runners next to you. Don't look at them while you have your head turned. You are not looking at the track ahead of you and the finish line. While I do that, I am crippled and I'm looking at how quick they're going and I'm wondering if I can keep up with them and and there's a great deal of extra pressure on me to do that. And you know what we do as a Christian? We often look at the runner next to us. Wow, he's going a bit fast. Man, he's going slow. What's wrong with him? And the scripture says, look away. Look away from that. Look away from the other runners in this race. That's not to say we don't care for them. That's not the point of it. The point of this is my vision is not to be fixed on them. I'm not looking at who's around. and I'm not looking at how advanced they are in the race. I'm running my race. Don't try to match their speed or outdo them. Run your race with truth and hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. Another thought, look away from the world's allurements. The world promises an easier race, but we know from the scriptures that their track ends in death. And yet so many Christians, their eyes are fixed on something other than Christ. Fixed on the world's allurements, all that can be theirs, treasures of this life. Look away again from the life of ease. So this, this, this race is too hard. I can't do this. I'm looking for a life of ease. That which is comfortable. But don't forget that the race of ease leaves you void of eternal reward. If you look for ease, you may well find ease. But you will sacrifice eternal reward and the path that God has chosen for you. 
Friends, look away from the courses of other men. Look away from the path that God has for others. Look away from uh, your gazing at, wow, look at what God is doing in that person's life. It's not fair. Or, or I'm so glad I don't have that situation. I'm glad that's not my track. Look away from other people's tracks. Look away from the courses that God has set out for other men and women. God has predetermined your race and He's provided all that is needed for its completion. Look away from your treasures. They will only distract you from the ultimate treasure who awaits at the end of the race. Look away from what you've amassed. Look away from your mansions. Look away from your portfolios. Look away from all of that because your treasure is at the end of this race. Your true, great, supreme, overarching treasure is not what you have amassed. It is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate treasure. In fact, a great question to ask is this. Can heaven be heaven without the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you know what? For many Christians, all they want to talk about is finally I'm out of this life and I can walk on the street of gold and I can walk by that, that perfect stream and I can just enjoy my, my heavenly reward in my life. And they talk and talk and talk and talk about this concept of heaven and it's void of Jesus Christ. If your heaven is void of Jesus Christ, you may well not be going there because Jesus Christ is the eternal reward. He is the final and total destination, the absolute satisfaction and the supreme treasure in this life and the next. Look away from your temporal treasures. Friends, look away from your sin and encumbrances. He's told us to lay them aside and yet so often we're looking at those faults. We're focusing our attention on, on our own sin and there is a time whereby we need to look and say, yes, I have sinned, I have done wrong and I need to get that right. But don't spend your life gazing at your own faults and sins. We have them. But look at Jesus Christ. Look at the one who carried your burdens, who bore your griefs, your sorrows and your sin. Because, you know, if you look at your sin and encumbrances, you will make no progress in your race. Look away from yourself. Don't look at your achievements. Don't look at what you've accomplished. You know why? You haven't accomplished anything. Don't look at your strength. You don't have any. Don't look at your physique and your muscle. You don't have any. Any power and strength that you have has been given to you by the one at the end of the finish line. That's the only strength and enablement you have in this world. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at what you have achieved. Don't look at your weakness or your failure on the other side of that because that will bring fatigue and discouragement. Don't look at the track ahead. What? I thought we're supposed to have a a vision of the future. I thought this was a message about vision and future, isn't it? Why should I not look at the track ahead? Because you don't know what the track ahead is. You You can imagine all kinds of things. You can think about what's coming around that next bend and I wonder what the Lord has for me next. And those are fine things to consider for a moment, but don't have your gaze fixed on future events because you don't even know what tomorrow may bring. 
The only thing that you can look at with absolute certainty is the one at the end of the track. Jesus Christ. Don't look to the future of your track. You do not know. You don't know what is yet to come. Don't try to determine its future path for the strength and enablement is given for today. Don't let tomorrow's burdens enter today. They'll rob you of the strength you have for this day. Look away, church, from the affairs of our day. Look away from the spirit of the age, the perilous times. They will only grieve and wax your soul as it did with Job there in Sodom. Look away from the affairs of the day. Don't make that your gaze and your supreme focus. There's many more, but one more thought for us. Look away from your health or from your sickness because that can be taken or given in a moment. Strength does not reside in you. It resides in the Lord. And so it's really important we understand what we must look away from. Those are just a few for you to consider, but in your own life, you need to know as the Spirit would convict you even now, what is that thing or those things that I must look away from that I might gaze intently on one thing and that being the person of Jesus Christ. And so we've just answered the question, what am I to look to? The wandering gaze must be transformed into a single, penetrating, all-encompassing vision of Jesus Christ. Be thou my vision. Fill all my vision. You know, Christianity is so filled with cliches, is it not? If we could just lay aside the cliches from our vocabulary and actually live them out, our lives would be transformed. Let me give you an example. We sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Great song. We love that song. It's a beautiful song. But my question is, why have the things of life not grown strangely dim? Well, either the author of the song lied or we are not turning our eyes upon Jesus. We sing, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, naught be all else to me, nothing else be anything to me, save that thou art, thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, your presence is my life. We can sing it. We can say, Lord, be my vision. Nothing else matters to me at all in this life. And yet the reality of it is, if we're honest, most of the time, many things matter to us. And he is not our vision. We say, maybe in counselling someone, just look to Jesus and everything will be all right. We know that. We've heard that phrase. We've heard that term. And yet we say that and we stumble through our Christian life looking everywhere else but to Christ. Occasionally, every now and then, maybe when we sing or pray in church, we catch a fleeting glimpse of Him and we rejoice in that moment. But the call here is to look and to continue to look, to focus our attention constantly and permanently on the person of Jesus Christ. Looking unto Him. There are four things. Four things to help us this morning and with these we will close. Four aspects 
of our Saviour's life and work, that must be the object of our vision. We turn away, so I want to, I've given us things we need to turn away from, but I want to now give you four things, and there's more, but four from this text that are to be the object of our vision. And we'll move through these really quickly. The first thing is we must look to his atoning work. Look to Jesus. Our text tells us the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We are to look to his atoning work. Look away from all these other things, but look to what he has accomplished. The founder and the perfecter of our faith. This word founder, it literally has the idea of an author or a captain or a pioneer of our faith. He's the one who began this whole thing off. He is the one who instigated this new covenant. He's the one who brought the gospel to fruition. He is the beginning. We might say with John the Alpha. We'll get to the Omega in a minute. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the lamb selected before the foundation of the world. Before you came into existence, before life was ever breathed into your soul, so to speak, the Lord Jesus was already the predetermined means of your salvation. He was already the author. He was already that one who was going to do the work. The text tells us he's not just simply the founder, but he's also the perfecter. In other words, he's the completer. He's the finisher. He's the one who accomplished. He is the victor. His death and resurrection cancelled your debt, purchased your soul and brought regeneration where all you had was death. When we get back to uh, me preaching through the, the seven sayings of the Saviour on the cross, uh, one of the last ones we'll look at is that incredible one in John chapter 20, excuse me, John chapter 19, I think verse 30 where the Lord Jesus on the cross says to Telestai, it is finished. This is from the same Greek word. This perfecter of our faith, this completer, same Greek root word, it is finished, to Telestai. It is done, it's over. He completed it. He began it and he completed it. It's all within him. The gospel is totally within the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. It's not about you. And so when we're looking, when we're gazing at the Lord Jesus, what are some things we can gaze upon? Well, look to his atoning work, which will be the focus of what we do in a few moments. Second thing, look to his joy. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy. Here's a question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Here's the question. How can the Son of God who suffered so cruelly at the hands of sinful men, operate with undiminished joy. How is that possible? Well, in answering that question, we need to understand a couple of things, and that is that joy is not a fleeting emotion. Now, there are many definitions for joy. Here's my definition. Uh, If it's helpful to you, that's great. This is what I suggest joy is in the spiritual realm. Joy is that supreme delight in God 
produced by the Holy Spirit which transcends the temporal circumstance. Let me say that again. Joy is that supreme delight in God. Its object is God. Produced by the Holy Spirit which transcends the circumstance. That is what I believe joy in the Scripture really is. And you say, well, how can the Lord Jesus have joy? Well, it's very simple. There was never a moment in Jesus' life where he was not filled with the Holy Spirit. There is never a moment. There is never a moment in his life where he did not therefore operate with undiminished joy. Because is not the fruit of the Spirit joy? One might say, well, what about that time, that specific time when they were literally hammering nails into his hands and feet? How is it possible that at that moment he could have joy? Surely not. Again, joy is not based on fleeting emotions in temporal circumstances. It's based in God, produced by the Holy Spirit. Even though his body was experiencing immense pain, he rejoiced in God and First Peter tells us he committed his soul to the righteous judge who does things right. At this point, just very quickly, I just want to insert a comment that is really important for us to understand, church, because we live in a day where preachers are saying all kinds of things that is wicked, heinous accusations in the gospel. Some preachers today would have us believe that the joy of Jesus was the thought of us. But if you've ever heard the phrase, Jesus had you in mind... Now, I understand what those preachers are seeking to achieve, but may I say that that is preposterous. How selfish, how proud to think that we were the reason he operated with joy. That throws in the face everything about the truth of joy. You are not the reason he was joyous when he went to the cross. The reason why he was joyous was because of the approval and satisfaction of his heavenly father having completed the work of salvation and the knowledge that he would soon return to be with him and sit at the right-hand side of the throne of God, awaiting his final coronation as the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is his joy. We are not his joy. We may be a part of his plan, but we were not his joy. His joy was always his Father. And it was always rooted in that reality. Always. You see, the cross didn't make Jesus happy. Everybody get that? The cross didn't make Jesus happy. Uh, The Garden of Gethsemane was not a man who was happy, but it was a man joyful because he was obedient to his heavenly Father and would go to any length to complete the appointed task. You say, what's the point? What are you saying? Christian, you may not be happy in every situation. You may not be happy in every circumstance of your track, Your track may have some difficulties. Your race may have some difficulties in it. You may be experiencing some real difficulties right now in the race and it's hard. And may I say to you, this last week has been hard. I have been laid down on my back and most of you know that I am not very good laying down on my back. It was not a happy time, but I had learned in that time that there could be great joy in it. And the only reason that can be is because my eyes and yours too are focused on the joy giver, Jesus Christ.
The race that you run has many twists, turns, bends, ascents, descents, potholes, all of which may be uncomfortable and not pleasurable, yet the joy of the Lord is your strength. So here's the summary. The thesis of that is run with Christ's vision in sight, his approval in mind and his joy ever before you. We need to continue. Point number three, second last point, we need to look to his perseverance. We need to look to the perseverance of Jesus Christ. Look at the text here. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Hupomeno is the Greek word here and those of us who are in Bible class on Mondays, you might recall that from James. It's mentioned a number of times there. It's about that man who remains steadfast under trial and the crown of life is given. James chapter 1 and verse 12, you might recall that. That's the trial of your faith to abide under, to persevere despite trial and suffering. Now we, we might ask this question. Or make a statement. Of course Jesus had endurance. He's God's son. Right? We might be tempted to say, well, that's not really fair. I mean, we're not, we're not divine. We're not, um, we're not humanity that is deity. That's not fair to make that comparison that we need to have endurance like Jesus Christ. There's something that we forget sometimes with our focus on Christ's deity. Sometimes we get it out of balance and this is what we need to remember. He is a human being and he was prone to tiredness, to pain, to hurt and he underwent temptation of a greater level than anybody in the history of humanity. You say, yes, but he's God. Yes, but he's a man. You say, yes, he's God. Yes, but he's a man. And we read in scripture that he hungered that he thirsted, that he was weary. In fact, I just want to really quickly, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 1? You've got to just see this because this is really important for us as we think about endurance. In Mark chapter 1, something you may not have ever noticed in the Scriptures before. Mark chapter 1 records the busiest day in the life of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Okay, you check that out yourself and see. The busiest day in the life of Jesus Christ. And this is what has happened. We're not going to read it, but let me just tell you this. He called his disciples. He healed a man with an unclean spirit. He taught the multitudes. He healed Simon's mother-in-law. At evening, in verse 32, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or opposed or oppressed by demons. The whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is a mammoth day in the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in humanity. How did Jesus persevere? Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. So how did the Lord Jesus in his humanity persevere? He persevered because he was in constant communion with his Father and because he set aside specific time without distraction to pray. 
So how am I going to endure? How is it possible for me to endure in this race? It's too hard. There's too many things. Uh, the ministry's too full on or there's too many problems in life. I just can't. Have... The Lord Jesus understood this. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in every respect he has been tempted like we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest who understands it all. Every aspect of our humanity. If Jesus is the Son of God and he is, and if he has all power and he does, then why did he have to pray? Well, that's a good question. He's the Son of God. Why does he have to pray? Because as a human being, subject to all aspects of humanity, he, like us, found power, found refreshment and perseverance through prayer and communion with his heavenly Father. So look to his perseverance. Finally, look to his majesty and his sufficiency. I have endeavoured to try and keep this short, this message, but I'm not going to cut short on this because to look to his majesty, to his sufficiency. At the end of verse 2, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's not standing. He is not anxiously pacing the corridors of heaven awaiting his coronation and the marriage supper of the Lamb. He is not, uh, he's not biting his nails, so to speak, and I say that reverently. He's not doing any of those things. You know why? It's done. It's finished. The work is done. He is the founder and the completer. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in majesty. He awaits his coronation day. He awaits the day when he will be revealed in his fullness to every tribe, nation and tongue and all will bow before him and confess him as Lord. Philippians chapter 2 tells us. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The day is coming and so he's seated. Now someone might ask, well, what is Jesus doing right now? Is he just... Just sitting there like, these are really good practical questions for us to ask of the scriptures. And the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus is doing two or three things depending on your theological bent. Here is what he is doing. First John chapter 2 verses 1 through 2. He is our advocate before the Father. He is there when we sin. We have an advocate, the Bible says. He advocates before the Father. He is our intercessor, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us. Now whether you pile that into one or make that two, that's your decision. He's intercessor, he's advocate, but he's doing something else too. John chapter 14 says, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you might be also. So what is he doing? He's advocating, he's interceding and he is preparing a place for those of his elect. He's majestic. We we won't take the time, but Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah confronted with this incredible vision. And if I can remember it, I'm going to just quote it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon a throne and his train filled the temple. What an incredible thought. High and lifted up and his train, the, the nature of his majesty, the proof of his majesty was always in the length of the train and it fills the temple. 
This isn't just, this isn't like the Queen of Sheba who had a big train. This is Jesus Christ who has an enormous train that fills the temple. And the house was filled with smoke, representation of the very presence of God. And then the seraphims cry one to another and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Here's these seraphims. And they have six wings. With two they cover their face. With two they fly. And with two they cover their feet. They're representative of reverence. They can't even look upon His face and they will go and do His bidding. That's the seraphim. And here they are crying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is this King on the throne. His majesty supersedes anything else. He's the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And we read in John chapter 12, I think it's verse 41, until we get to the New Testament, we don't know this, but that King in Isaiah chapter 6 is none other than Jesus Christ. That's who it is. John tells us six or seven hundred years later that that who you saw was Jesus Christ on the throne. What an incredible thought. This is the majesty of Jesus Christ. You may not have time to turn there, but I'm just going to read Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. John says that once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. By the way, don't let the homosexuals steal that rainbow. That rainbow is Jesus Christ's. I get so angry when I see that rainbow. This is Jesus Christ's rainbow around his throne. And it had an appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first like a lion, the second like an ox, the third the face of a man and the fourth like an eagle and so on. And this is what they say day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is and who is to come. And then they say after they cast their crowns before the throne in verse 11, worthy, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here's the summary as we close. Jesus came into the world immaculately, lived extraordinarily, died excruciatingly, rose victoriously, ascended gloriously back into heaven, promising to one day return and take us home. He is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the only one to whom we must look, to whom we must gaze intently. Look to Jesus. Behold our God.